Glory to him who calls us each by name and leads us in the way. Amen. A major aspect of the Christian religion is the primacy of Jesus in the religion and in the cosmic story of creation. Our prayers and our scripture say that Jesus is the head of the church, the firstborn of all creation, and the author of our salvation. The opening prayer called the Gloria, which we use at our 8 o'clock service, says of Jesus, You alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High. Sometimes this emphasis on the uniqueness of Jesus reinforces an error in our thinking, which is his solitary nature. Jesus may have been the archetype for us, but he was never actually alone. Throughout creation, from the beginning, God has always employed human beings to bear God's word and to bring forth the fruit of God's will, as it is with Jesus, who was born not out of thin air, but out of the womb of Mary. His whole life is constituted, as ours are, in and through relationships. And this passage from John's Gospel reveals several of the different kinds of relationships that surround the figure of Jesus. It's striking to me when we read this gospel that John the Baptist, who is known as the forerunner, who proclaims in the wilderness the prophetic word to prepare the way for Jesus, who baptizes people that they might be willing and ready to receive the Savior when he comes, It's striking to me that twice in the passage we read this morning, John says of Jesus, I myself did not know him. But when I saw him, I recognized him. This is a principle about how God is at work in the world. We don't necessarily know in advance what God is going to call us to. We might know it's something, but we're not quite sure what. The reason that we can call John faithful is because he was ready to receive God's sign so that when it arrived, he knew, behold, the Lamb of God. And another aspect of the relationships that surround Jesus are those of his disciples. It's also interesting to me that when John, who has his own disciples, points out Jesus, they leave John to follow Jesus. Were they too waiting for someone other than John? Were they too ready to abandon what they had committed to for the sake of something more? And then there's the story of Simon, who it doesn't say whether he was waiting or ready or anticipating anything. It just says he was Andrew's brother. And Andrew went to him and said, come on. And he does. And in the process, he receives a whole new name, which is deeply symbolic of the idea of a significant change in life. So all these different kinds of relationships surround the ministry of Jesus. Without them, what would he be and what would we have as a savior? All of us in our own ways are also looking for God's signs and listening for God's voice to speak to us, to encourage us, to reveal to us the steps we need to take to continue walking in the way of Jesus. You know, whether we really consciously choose it or not, the fact that we identify as a congregation of a Christian church 
We are, in some way or another, a disciple of Jesus, a student of his, and we follow him. That doesn't just mean looking up at him and saying, gosh, what a nice person he was and what great things he did. It means committing our life to do the same things and to follow the same path. And all of the relationships that we have, whether here or in our families, in our workplace, in the world, all of them are occasions for God to enter in and reveal to us the next step we need to take or the direction we need to go in. I often think of my wife and my kids uh, as people who reveal myself to me. They know me probably better than anybody and are perfectly comfortable telling me about myself even when it's something I don't necessarily want to know. I deeply appreciate having a, a, a martial arts discipline where I have teachers who offer me criticism and say, uh, you're doing this wrong. You need to do it more like this. I have one teacher who, when he takes a break in the class to offer some instruction or correction to the exercises that we're doing, he, he'll say, here's what I see happening. And if you don't know whether or not I'm talking to you, just assume that I am. I must need to learn something. It can happen at random, as it did for me this past Friday. Chris and I took a day out of the office, as we do occasionally, to try to plan some big picture stuff for the year ahead. And uh, I took him over to the East Bay, and we went hiking up in Redwood Park. And as we're hiking along the trail, we came upon a group of what I assume are high school volunteers doing some trail maintenance. And um, in the manner of high schoolers, as soon as we approached the group, the first one closest to us, put up her hand for a high five. And so that has become my customary greeting for anybody under the age of 18 here at the church. So I was ready. And I high-fived her, and then others turned to notice, here we come, we're walking through the group, high-fiving everybody, making our way on with our hike. And just as we're past the group, I, our, I didn't see who said this. I have no idea who it was. She said, called out, I like your glasses. And she says, they really bring out your personality. <laughs> the voice of God. <laughs> Tomorrow, in our national life, we celebrate an example of one who, in our modern history, is the closest example of someone whose life mirrors that of Jesus. I'm talking, of course, about Martin Luther King, who, by his ministry, prophetic preaching, example, and his death, changed the world and America forever. It is not often told, however, that Martin Luther King did not know that that was his destiny or his ministry. When he was a young Baptist preacher just out of seminary, his ambition was to be the pastor of a congregation, and that was it. You can read for yourself, because it's preserved in history, his first letter to the Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, where he doesn't make any mention of justice or of marches or sit-ins or the problem of Jim Crow and segregation in America. He asks his congregation instead to prayerfully consider their pledge for the coming year. 
and to decide which committees they're going to serve on so that they can maintain the health and vitality of the congregation. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It was only after Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery City bus that Martin was invited into a conversation that had been going on for many years and that many people had been organizing around waiting for the right time and the right arrangement of people to be in place to be able to take their private conversations public and begin to address publicly the injustice of racial segregation in America. After Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus and was arrested, these ministers and and, uh, community organizers went into action And they called a meeting, and they gathered together in one place. And the degree to which Martin Luther King was interested in being part of this conversation was that he was willing to let them use his church basement to hold the meeting. That was it. But because he had already gained a reputation as a preacher, and because maybe some other people in that community with a little more experience and wisdom saw some sign in him, They nominated him at this meeting to become president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, which is the name for their organization through which they would enact sit-ins and protests and boycotts. He declined the nomination. Too busy running his church. Not that interested, thank you. A more senior pastor at another congregation named Ralph Abernathy wouldn't let him go, though. And he followed... Martin around, and he called him, and he talked to him, and he twisted his arm, and finally Martin agreed to be the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And in his own writings, he admitted that he hadn't really thought about it that much, and if he had, he probably would have said no. And that at most, he thought the commitment meant a couple of weeks while the organization negotiated with the city, and the whole thing would sort of blow over, and he could go back to being a pastor at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Well, the rest, as they say, is history. But it ain't over yet. Martin Luther King has become part of our pantheon of civic heroes. Nobody goes to school tomorrow, and many businesses are closed because we recognize that his contribution to our civic life is worthy of the honor, as it is worthy of the honor of him having a statue of himself placed on the National Mall. But if we dig deeper into Martin Luther King's legacy, we recognize that the work that he took up was begun in the fight against racism and Jim Crow segregation, but it went beyond that. He carried his message of justice and freedom into the realms of what he called militarism and materialism, two other ways that injustice is expressed in the world and in our country. He got a lot less support from the Johnson administration for his interest in fighting militarism and materialism. And history and the media have recorded much less of his speeches, writings, and actions on those fronts. He died fighting for economic justice for garbage collectors and was assassinated assassinated the night before a strike of garbage collectors that he was going to join because they were fighting for better wages. His work is not done. And his death did not close the book on his life and ministry. Just as Jesus' death doesn't close the book on his ministry, and just as his work is not done. And through 
The examples of Jesus and people like him, like Martin Luther King, God continues to call each of us into the work that is still to be done in the world to produce the vision of a righteous, just world, the kingdom of God. If you look back at the first reading from the prophet Isaiah, there's a striking phrase in there where God says to the prophet, I'm not just raising you up to restore Judah and Israel to the covenant that I made with them. I'm raising you up because I'm going to raise Israel up to be a light to the whole world. God says, it's too light a thing just to save one people. There's a bit of a Hebrew poetic allusion going on there. When God says it's too light a thing, the corollary statement might be, it is insufficient to God's glory that only one nation be saved. Therefore, God gives Israel to be a light to the nation so the whole world might be saved. And those of us that inherit the tradition of Israel and the religion of Jesus have to remember it is too light a thing that we alone be saved. It is insufficient to God's glory that we alone live a good life, enjoy material security, participate in the structures and systems of prosperity for ourselves. It is not faithful to the tradition of Jesus to think of our path as being related only to our own well-being. To follow Jesus, to follow the example of Martin Luther King, to live in the shadow of God's call to us is to trust God who gives us strength and courage to live a life for the sake of others and not just ourselves. It was true for Martin Luther King, and it's true for us today. The work of Jesus remains for us to continue and to carry on in the world now. There's still a lot of racism in the world. There's still a lot of militarism, and there's still a lot of materialism. And to the extent that we locate Jesus at the center of our religious life, It's because he calls us to live faithfully for the world of justice, peace, and love, which he reveals to us on the cross, and which we, by our efforts, can bring to fruition in our lives today. May God's will be done here and in the world at large. Amen.